I know of no better way for us to begin this new series in the book of John than reading the introduction that John himself wrote for his gospel. So to begin, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. Please read along with me in your own copy of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. I've been asked repeatedly, why uh, John? How did we end up here? Almost with a twinge of disappointment. No judgment to anyone who's asked the question. But after doing something like the Minor Prophets, which is so novel, so creative, so new, so, I mean, just something that just we never discussed before, why the book of John that's just so familiar? Something that we all tend to know so well. I think the best way for me to, to answer that question would be just to uh, share with you now a brief uh, account uh, from C.S. Lewis's uh, Prince Caspian. I was delighted last night, as a matter of fact, even to walk into my house after uh, making a visit to see my children had picked Prince Caspian to watch on TV all three hours of it. <laughs> I don't even think we made it to the end. But one of the things that strikes me about uh, Disney's rendition of Prince Caspian, outside of its length, is, as you would expect, what it's missing. 
In my opinion, the best part of Prince Caspian is how it actually builds this anticipation throughout the novel for Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure. Like the children just kind of show up and they're just wondering where he's at. They're looking for him and you get like halfway through the book and you still haven't seen him yet. And then all of the sudden, Lucy, one fateful night, wanders away from the camp and she sees the Christ figure, the lion, for the first time in the entire story and he looks way different than he did before. She gazed into his large, wise face, and he said, Welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? Aslan replies, I am not, but every year you grow you will find me bigger. That's my prayer, that we would find Christ bigger. Has that been your experience? As you just look back over even the last year, your spiritual growth, is Christ bigger to you today than he was a year ago? Is he bigger than the societal problems that you were worried about a year ago? A year ago, the thing that I heard everyone talking about is how COVID would never end, and this was like the dominant conversation about how we would handle masking protocols and what we're going to do about people gathering in the church and the impact that this may have upon the economy. The year before that, it was actually the beginning of COVID. It was right around this time. So I had two years of that being the grand obsession. And now it just seems that um, the newest headline has captured everyone's attention with new vigor, with new gusto. And it just kind of makes me wonder, is Christ really bigger to us this year than he was last year or the year before that? Is he bigger to you than the news headlines Is he more comforting? Is he more assuring? Is Christ bigger to you than uh, your own desires to grow personally? I think another thing that comes in close competition uh, with Christ is our culture that is obsessed with self. Uh, You see it in literature. I would encourage you at some point, just for kicks and giggles, to go into Amazon, look in the books, and actually type in self-esteem and see how many come back. The number grows by the day. It is in the scores of thousands of books that have been published on that very topic. And why? Because that sells. We're always working on ourselves. We're trying to make ourselves better people. If it's not social pressures that are getting to us, it's self-improvement that tends to kind of dominate the day. And I'm asking you, is Christ bigger to you now than he was a year ago in relation to your desire to improve self? Let's ask it about our church for a second. Is Christ bigger to us as a church today uh, than he was a year ago? Churches have this strange 
tendency. It, it happens so quickly where stuff around Christ can become as important or as big as Christ. Sometimes it can be conservative politics. Sometimes it can be something as hearty as the doctrines of grace. Sometimes it can be even the Bible. Uh, but sometimes we find ourselves just quietly, imperceptibly off target. Christ, no longer the sinner, but something under him has all of a sudden enraptured us. It has captured our attention. What is the solution for such a thing? Is it that we actually stop thinking about Christ for a little while so we can build up a desire, like almost you don't want to eat too much of it or you'll get sick of it, so we need some distance, and then we can jump into Jesus every once in a while? You know, actually, the solution is counterintuitive. The more you have of Christ, the more you will enjoy Him. The more you focus on Christ, the more you will want Him. And we see that in the life and narrative of the Gospel of John. What we have here in this particular book is one of Jesus' followers who has had plenty of time to meditate upon and think about this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the other Gospels were written anywhere between A.D. 45 to A.D. 60. This one's probably written somewhere between A.D. 85 and 90. And so John has had plenty of time to sit and think about what the other guys wrote and sit and think about what he himself experienced in the person of the Lord Jesus. And what we find in John's Gospel is that he has thought about Christ to such a degree that all of a sudden it seems that Christ is bigger. The others are writing kind of historically. They're, they're proving that Jesus was the Christ, that the Son of God, he was who he says he was. But John's emphasis isn't merely historical. It, it's theological. It's exaltational. He wants you to prize Jesus for who he is, not just possess knowledge and facts about him. And that's why he introduces his book with this theological bomb. I mean, like, it blows off the page. It begins unlike any other. Instead of beginning with a genealogy or some historical records, he just, like some wise producers will do, shows you the end of the movie first, and then he's going to spend the rest of it showing how he got there. And what he's intending to do is to stun us with the person and work of Jesus. He's not going to make the argument first and then give the big reveal. He starts off with the big reveal, and in that, through that lens, he's going to make his argument. And so the best way for us to begin the book of John is to actually begin the way John began it. <laughs> and that is to look at this unveiling of Christ that he unloads in these first 18 uh, verses. And he does so in a phenomenal way. In fact, I feel like I've been beating my head up against the table this week to try to figure out the best way to package what John has put together in these 18 verses. And the, 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 the best way that I can come up with it is for you to see it as a symphony with some movements. If you've never taken music appreciation, you need to understand that those really long and beautiful classical songs that you've heard on the radio from time to time are actually divided up into little movements. 
What we have here is a grand symphony of our Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And what John is going to do is move in several ways to show the beauty of Christ. There's four main movements, and he'll switch back and forth between them. So if you're taking notes, you better pay attention. (laughs) Movement one, I will label deity. Movement two is authenticity. Movement three, humanity. Movement four, paternity. He'll go from the first, the second, to the third, to the fourth, back to the third, then to the second, and then to the first. He'll begin where, he'll end where he began. Don't worry, if you didn't get them all, we'll repeat them a lot. But I got to get moving. First movement, deity. Jesus eternally existed as God. Look at verses one through three. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice those opening lines in the beginning. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Genesis 1-1 is is calling you back to that, that very point before everything began, and you know what it's saying? Before that very moment, this entity known as the Word existed. It said, in the beginning was the Word. The Greek is a phenomenal language in many ways. I like it better than Hebrew because it's more specific. What the tense is here, the was, isn't just past tense, that's English. Uh, It's an imperfect. It means that he was existing, that's a good way to say it, at the time of the beginning. He was already in existence. What we're talking about here is that this one, this entity, this word, existed before creation ever came into being. Not only that, but it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Whoever this entity is, the Word, uh, is also with God. So, of course, God existed before creation, and so did this one called the Word. Now, great question for us here is, why in the world does he keep calling this person the Word? That used to bother me as a kid. I remember reading John in elementary school and in high school, and I'm like, why doesn't he just say Jesus? (laughs) The word is an amazing choice because what is a word other than the expression of another person? Like, you could look at me, but if you wanted to know about me, I would have to tell you something. I would have to communicate. The Greek word is logic. I mean, logos, or what we often translate logic, communication. This one, whoever he is, this entity, it is personal, is the communication of the Father. If you want to know what God is like, it is the the Word. And this one who communicates God uh, existed before creation, and listen to this, he existed with God in a close relationship. That's what the preposition means. But then here's, here's the mic drop, just right at the very beginning one of the most powerful theological statements in all of Scripture, the second half of verse 1, and the Word was God. Uh, Friends, this entity, this person who existed with God was actually God Himself. Now, He is distinct from the person of God the Father because He was with God. You can't be with someone and still be the same person. But he's of the same essence as God because it says that he was God or he is God. 
For those of you, by the way, who have ever been confronted by uh, nicely dressed ladies or gentlemen with magazines in hand on a Saturday morning who have tried to tell you in some way, shape, or form that John 1.1 actually doesn't speak to the divinity of the Word or the Christ, I would just have you understand something very clearly. The translation that you have in front of you, if it is a normal translation, not the New World translation, but a normal translation of the Bible, gets it right. Now again, I'm no Greek scholar, but I think I understand enough to be able to understand what this means. It is translated accurately. The Word was God. They say, well, there's not an article in front of it, therefore it's the word was a God. But that is not how the Greek language works. The way this thing is constructed is that it is definite. The construct, I mean, the way that is positioned in the sentence is that this one, this word, actually is definitively God. So this is a pretty high view. This first movement is bringing us like upward, like to the upper echelons of existence. He is deity. That's why I call it deity. The Word is God, and then he puts it in reverse order in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, in case you doubted it. This one coexisted with God the Father. But not only do we see his deity through his essence, but we also see it through his action. Notice verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I like it. There's a positive and a negative. The positive is he made everything. The negative is there wasn't anything that was made without him. Uh, these are what we call, in logic, friends, absolute statements. You know when you get in an argument with uh, your spouse and you say stuff like, you always do this and you never do that. Well, that's a logical fallacy because they don't always or never do any of those things. That's absolute language that you can't impose upon an individual. And yet here we have absolute language that is intentionally being imposed upon the word. And this is what it says about the Word, this one who is other than God, but of the same essence of God. He made it all. Now again, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses both would tell you that Jesus was created by God. And yet the text clearly says that anything that was ever made at any point was made by the Word. That is a fact. I think that we often think that Genesis 1-1, that God the Father is in action and that Jesus is just hiding out somewhere. And yet, as God is speaking, He is the planner, the Son is the performer. He is the one that brings it all into existence. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17 make the same claim. Hebrews 1 does the same thing. The Son was actually the entity by which that which we see around us came into existence. The Father planned it. The Son performed it. He is the Creator. He is above all. He is over all. And then listen to this. Verse 4, this is His relationship to humanity. In Him, the Word was life. And the life was the light of men. I just think about life. That's just a beautiful, abstract concept. Compare it with death for a second. I, I mean, like... Whatever is alive among us is sourced in Him. If it has life, it came from Him. I always find it amusing to check out my uh, bottle of water and see, you know, sourced in, you know, such and such a glacier or whatever. 
I'm like, I doubt it all. <laughs> but there's something about knowing where it came from. You're we like, this is awesome. You bottle up everything that you would call life, and it has been sourced in the Word. Living things, living people. And it says that the light was the life. I mean, the life was the light of men. He was light to humanity. Uh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I, lo- I like the metaphor of light because it's, it's a great metaphor. I mean, we think of uh, darkness prevailing over the world and light piercing darkness. Nor- normally, light embodies that which is good and is beautiful, and darkness is normally a symbol or a metaphor for that which is deathly or destructive. What he's saying here is that Every common grace that you can imagine, all that which is positive, all that which is bright, all that which is light, again, sourced in him. It came from him. And here's the beautiful thing, the way that it ends. It says that the the light shines in the darkness. We have this cursed world. There is a lot of darkness around. And notice this. It says the darkness has not overcome it. This general grace and kindness that comes from the Word that is shining out into all humanity always wins. It cannot be overcome apart from God's sovereign decision. Light always beats darkness. In 10 out of 10 competitions, when you turn on a light, the darkness goes away. It's invincible. It cannot be overcome. Do you ever, uh, ever play paper, rock, scissors as an adult? It's a great decision-making thing. You know, if you need to decide uh, where to go for date night, we don't do that. We probably should from time to time. You know, I am enjoying, actually, uh, the, the new iterations, though, of rock, paper, scissors that I'm seeing coming down the pike, mainly for my children, uh, of course, uh, many of you have probably heard of not only rock, paper, scissors, but rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock. Lizard, Spock. I'm not going to explain the rules to you. You look it up on Google, and I encourage you to play at some point. You know, the great thing about the, those games is it's just really clear that this one beats that one, that one beats this one. But there's a new iteration of the game that my children taught me a couple years ago that has blown my mind. Right, this is the way that it goes. I don't know the official name, but this is just a little tagline that you're supposed to say. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot, anything you want to do. And then they just make up something. So, like, you, you, it doesn't have to be a rock or a paper or scissors. It could be an atomic bomb. And then the other kid, he makes up his thing. You know, like, a fire extinguisher the size of a sun. Well, okay, the fire extinguisher the size of a sun. You know, like, it's a ridiculous game. And the crazy thing is, the kids every once in a while get super spiritual and say, God. (laughs) (laughs) Of course God wins. Similarly, here he says, the light overcomes darkness. This one who is the word, you throw him into anything you want to do, he overcomes. Nothing stops him. This is a higher view of Christ. Uh, than most of us would actually have or than we actually tend to have. 
I think that in, in our background, it's a, one author called it a background virus that kind of runs and we don't even recognize it. We think of Jesus as the nice one. Yes, he's God, but he's just, he's the really friendly, and this isn't good theological language, but this is the way that we think of it. He's the really friendly part of God, and, and he's so compassionate, and he's so loving, and, and like, he knows how to hang out, and, and I, I identify with Jesus. I, I like Jesus. He is kind and compassionate and accessible, but the real power is the Father, the less nice one, that the Old Testament one. Friends, you need to understand something, that what you see in Jesus is nothing less and everything the same in power as God himself. He is God. He is deity. The second movement often gets ignored in expositions of John 1, 1 through 18 for whatever reason. I'm not kidding. I read through four of them and everybody ignored verses 6 through 8. It's like they're embarrassed by it. I would label the second movement here authenticity. What do I mean by that, authenticity? Well, specifically, I, I want you to understand that Jesus was historically verified as God. John the Baptist, the, the figure who's going to be mentioned here, it serves as historical verification for the identity of Jesus. Notice verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this isn't John the author, which will be clarified in chapter 20. This is who we know as John the Baptist, which will become clear in the next few verses. This, this one sent from God, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, what, what's the term that's repeated there over and over again? Do you notice it three times in three verses? Witness. Witness. He is a witness that is sent from God. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the courtroom, but a witness is not the attorney. A witness is someone who has been agreed upon by both the prosecution and defense to speak to the credibility of a person's case. They, they, they can affirm it or they can deny it and tear it down, but the point is they have been accepted as someone who can speak to the events. They're not the one who makes the decision, they're one who testifies to it, they're, they're one who affirms it. John the Baptist is God's heaven-sent witness to the world that Jesus was indeed the light, the divine light that he claimed to be. Jesus just could have shown up and said, I am the light of the world, he did that. But do you know what, humanly speaking, gave him the credibility to be able to be listened to in the first place? It was the fact that God, in the context of his old covenant promises to send one who would be like Elijah, we saw this in Malachi just last week, he was going to send an Elijah-type prophet to come and prepare the way of the Lord, Isaiah 40, verse 3. 
And the Jewish people, as much as they would even still today reject Jesus, receive John the Baptist as a real prophet. They actually embrace him as one who was authentically a spokesperson of God. And so what John the Baptist actually provides is some historical veracity for the claims that Jesus himself is making. I think, friends, sometimes we think that, that, that Christianity and that what we believe about the Scriptures is just kind of like plopped out of heaven somewhere. No, it exists in time. It exists in history. And John the Baptist was credible testimony of that. So if for all the times that you're reading through the Gospels and you're like, what's the big deal with John the Baptist? Let's just get on with Jesus. The whole point is that he was there to actually be a human pointer to the reality of the divine Christ. You know who the disciples were, by the way? We think of them as these amazing apostle-type guys, but they were frankly just a bunch of losers. Really. They were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were nobodies, and they became somebody because of their association with Jesus, but at the beginning, they were not respected. But you know who was respected? Like, on par with like Malachi and Isaiah and Hosea and Jeremiah, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist would testify that this one who came, the Word, was indeed the light from heaven. And it was his point not to create a following for himself, but to see people believe in him. John the Baptist is like the moon. He has no light in and of himself, but he is testimony to a greater light in a dark world. It was a dark world, and he was showing that the sun was indeed coming. So there's historical verification here. But because John doesn't give it much time, I won't give it much time either. Let's move to the third movement, which is what I'll call humanity. Deity, authority, I mean authenticity, humanity. This is interesting. Notice in verse 9, he's going to begin to describe what theologians will call the incarnation, but he does so in a very gentle, tactile way. Verse 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now that's it. (laughs) That's all it says, but there's a lot here. Well, A, we have the true light. What What is the true light? Well, if light is just all the positive ways that God has revealed himself through the world, generally speaking, through creation, he's saying there's something deeper, there's something truer, there's something more authentic behind that. It is the true light. It is the word. He entered into the world. Now, the world here, cosmos in Greek, from which we get cosmetology, isn't that interesting? I have no idea why. Actually, I do have an idea, but I'm not going to go down that road right now. But think of cosmos, not just cosmetology, but even better, cosmology, right? Like we think of the cosmos, we think of the universe, the galaxies. Uh, Jesus entered into, or the Word entered into the the world, uh, but that's a little too neutral. The way that John uses the word world throughout the entire book is actually like kind of the, the, the created order that has been infected by sin, and so, John three sixteen. think about it that way. For God so loved the world, right? When you think of the world in that instance, are you thinking of just the neutral planets and stars? No, you're thinking God so loved the world as in the fallen human individuals within it. This is what it says. The true light came into the world. 
This is speaking into his entrance. He entered into the fallen human realm. And he is the true light which gives light to everyone. And now there would be some people who were reading that carefully and would think, oh, well, does this mean that everyone who ever lives is ultimately uh, saved or illuminated because the light gives light to everyone? Well, everyone here, especially in light of the context of John, is not talking about everyone without exception, but everyone without distinction. To all kinds of people. He wasn't just coming to the Jews, but he was coming to everyone. I like the way that Augustine actually explains this passage. I mean, we're talking a long time ago, folks, like three, four hundred AD, and he's actually arguing in this particular context that the light coming to the world is like a teacher who comes to a village. The teacher is there for the village, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he teaches everyone in the village. In that particular day, for someone to have access to a teacher was a grace of the, to the good Lord because they didn't have education. And so what he's saying here is that Jesus was the light for the world. He made himself accessible. He entered into it. We'll mention more of this in a moment, but let's go on to the fourth movement. Paternity. Paternity. This is fascinating because the results of this word as light entering into the world produces an effect. And you're going to notice the effect through just these little subpoints that I would call rejection, reception, and regeneration. Rejection, reception, regeneration. Look at verse 10 to see this rejection concept. He was in the world. So God entered in through the person of the Son, and the world was made through him. We already acknowledged that, but notice this. Even though he made the world, the world did not know him. They did not comprehend him. They they did not accept him for who he was. Verse 11 makes it even more specific. It says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now notice this, he has written himself into human history, and yet they themselves would not receive him. I always loved, speaking of C.S. Lewis, uh, the way that he would actually explain this event of God becoming human, of himself writing himself into history, and he would use uh, the analogy of Hamlet. And he says, Hamlet, for example, would in no way be able to know about the existence of Shakespeare. He could look around this fictitious world and he could see evidences of authorship, but he would not know the author unless the author, Shakespeare, wrote himself into the play. God, in the person of his son, wrote himself into the play as the light of the world, as the savior for humanity and they even then still rejected him. What this is forecasting, friends, is what the book of John will show us in chapters 1 through 12. Chapters 1 through 12, we're going to see sign after sign after sign that this is God's Son. And yet you're going to see increasing and increasing opposition to him as the Son. But then when you get to 13 to 21, you're going to see the next group. Notice them in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. 
So there was a group who actually would receive him. As he had written himself into this play, and guess what? 13 through 21, the whole focus is on Jesus disclosing himself to his disciples, to his true followers, to those who would actually submit themselves to him. There's two kinds of people here. There are those who receive him as the Son of God, and there are those who reject him as the Son of God. So, rejection, reception, But notice the grand effect of what he was coming to do, and that is what I will call regeneration. To those who did receive him, those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. They would become God's children. They they would become the objects of his special care and attention and protection and affection. And what would bring that about? Well, verse 13 describes them in more detail. Look at it, please. This is important for the life of our church. I'll explain in a minute. These ones who became children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How did they become the children of God? How is it that they would ever receive or believe in His name in the first place? The text gets right to the root of it, and it is God must make it happen. How do we know whether we're one of the ones who have received divine life? by whether or not we are believing in his name, whether or not we have received his son. This is the only way into the family of God. I'm not a big um, fan of like the royal family. I have nothing against them. I hope that the Queen of England survives this COVID bout. Uh, But I know some people are obsessed with that kind of thing. They're always keeping up with who's in and who's out and whatever. I'm not a fan. But that being said, it would be kind of cool, right, to be part of the royal line? There'd be some status there. I'm sure there are some privileges, some perks. The interesting thing is that no matter how hard you or I ever try, we cannot become, in and of our own efforts, part of the royal family. You can make up a new driver's license and change your last name. <laughs> You can act royal as possible from what you've seen on The Crown on Netflix. (laughs) But you will not, by your own efforts, ever get into that family. There's only two options. Generation, that means you came from their bloodline, or adoption. Friends, the parallel here is clear. There is no way on God's green earth that you will ever enter into the family of God as a result of your own human efforts or striving. You can fake it, but you won't make it. You can pretend, you can hang around other Christians, you can try really, really hard, you can learn religious language, but the only way that you ever become a part of the family of God is by Him giving you life, which is evidenced in, here's the way it expresses itself, receiving Christ and relying upon Him alone. 
Believing in his name, you know what that means? It actually means counting on him for everything that he claims to be. Not just what you want from him, but who he says he is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means God. Jesus means Savior. Christ means prophetic one, or one who is anointed by the Spirit, the one who has the authority to be the prophet, priest, and king. He is a ruler and a rescuer. Whatever this... I've got to watch my language. Whatever this junk is... (laughs) that actually communicates to people that they can somehow receive Jesus as Savior and not receive Him as Lord is a lie from the pit of hell. You don't divide up Christ. It says that if you're born again, you believe in His name, everything that He said He is. It isn't just if you think Jesus is a great moral teacher or he is a divinely empowered figure. You must believe that Jesus is indeed God and Savior and Lord. That's why, for those of you who are kind of like new to church or maybe you hear me today and you're like, man, what's wrong with this guy? Why is he picking on Mormons? Why why do they have such a big deal with Jehovah's Witnesses or Unitarians? Uh, By the way, even Vladimir, your uh, testimony today, thank you for this, Uh, clarifying that he was at a church that was actually teaching baptismal regeneration, but knowing more of the backstory, they also denied the Trinity. Why do we make such a big deal out of the Trinity and doctrine? Because it is the difference between heaven and hell. And so, the grand object of everything that Christ came to accomplish was paternity. He would make us children of God. In John's movements, this is the high point. Did you know that this is the purpose of his gospel? John chapter 20, verse 31, he says that he's written all these things, he's collected all these testimonies so that, here's the grand point, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that you would trust in that for your only salvation and rescue. So it's the high point of his epilogue, but now he's going to work back from where he came. We've moved from deity to authenticity to humanity to paternity. But now let's work our way back. He's going to mention humanity again. Notice this. You've got to get it in its right context. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right. Uh, theological bomb number one is in one verse one where it says the word was God. Theological bomb number two is here in verse 14 and it is the word became flesh. (laughs) He didn't just write himself into a fictitious play. He entered into the unprivileged human realm I like that term for flesh. It's another one of those really elastic words. It can just mean like the skin on your body. It can mean humanity in general. Or it can actually, sometimes Paul will use it to refer to sinful tendencies uh, for those who live in fallen bodies. The way that John is using it here is just what Sinclair Ferguson calls unprivileged humanity. 
Jesus knew everything what it meant to be human except for committing sin. This is a big deal. This is not just a big deal theologically, but can I hit the practical point for a second? This is a big deal practically. Do you understand that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted by sin, to struggle with physical pain, to wrestle through like emotional duress. Like he descended from a privileged position in heaven to enter into humanity. And I want you to think about this just on a rather humorous note for a moment. Like if you had the option of entering into the world and taking on humanity, becoming a human, and you get to like tailor make your own body, what would it look like? I think for ladies, I have some ideas of what they think would look nice. And I think for men, I have some ideas of what they think would look nice. And yet, what did he do? Isaiah 52 says that he would take on a form that was actually unappealing, ugly. He would wear the status of a slave. He wouldn't have himself born in some palace somewhere. He was born in an animal feed stall. So he fully knew humanity. He entered in. He he took that on himself. This is something that that gives him glory. And the beautiful thing about this is for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, it is a parallel to that famous passage in Exodus 33 and 34. Do you remember that? Is there's that particular spot where Moses is saying, hey God, show me your glory, remember? And God says, you can't see me in my fullness. But here, hide in this rock, and I'll let you see, basically in Hebrew, like the corner of my garment. I'll let you see the after effects of me having come by. And and what does he reveal about himself? This is amazing, because God speaks out of that moment, that bright, brilliant moment that wasn't the full display of his glory because Moses would have been incinerated. But God speaks and explains to Moses what he's seeing in this brightness, and he declares himself to be the Lord, the Lord. And he starts to list off his attributes, and there are two that stand out in particular. Straight from the Old Testament, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and faithful or truthful. Notice what it says here of Christ when he entered into human flesh. It says that of his fullness we began to know grace and truth. In in this tactile existence of the Son of God, we would know what God is really like. I was listening to one describe it this way. I thought it was good. You know, that, that feeling of uh, holding a, a, a child in your arms as they're beginning to grow, and I don't know why kids do this, but it's a, it's a cool experience for a dad when they start, like, reaching out and trying to, like, feel your face, and they, like, grab your nose and, like, your ears and it's almost as if like they're trying to get familiar and acquainted with, you know, the, the one who is who's caring for them. God put himself into a form that we could handle and touch and feel and know. And in the end, we would find out that he is the same God, full of grace, full of truth. Friends, I think it's very important for us to hold on to both of those. What Jesus has revealed to us about God is both his grace and his truth. 
If you have a God of all grace, these positive feelings of warmth and love and acceptance, and it's all a lie and it's not true and it doesn't happen, it's empty, it's, it's a false promise, it's, it's worse than having even had that hope in the first place. The disappointment is vast. But if you have a God that's all truth and reality and yet we know nothing of grace, all we know is law, we have no hope. Jesus actually conveyed both in his humanity. He put on display truth. He would stand for truth, but he would also show grace time and time again. And we'll see that throughout this gospel. But then he shifts down again to the next movement, which is authenticity. Here we go. Notice he wants wants you to remember again, John, look at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Notice this. This historically verified witness actually says something that is pretty mind-blowing and it could seem very non-logical on the surface. All right? So here it is. He actually says about Jesus, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. So John was considered to be the greatest of all spiritual beings on the planet. He was like the prophet par excellence at the time. He was the greatest of the prophets who had come up to this point. And you know what he says? This one was ontologically, in essence, greater than me. But here he makes a statement also that, again, just defies logic. Because, why is he greater than me? Because he was before me. Um, I, I'm not good at, good at math, but I think I, I know enough to know what... This means uh, John was born six months before Jesus, so that means he's six months older than Jesus, and yet he testifies that Jesus existed before him. This wasn't just what Jesus said. This was what uh, the greatest prophet of Judaism had ever said about Jesus. He existed before I did. There's authenticity here. But then it ends where it began with deity. Look at verses 16 to 18. For from his fullness, from the fullness of the word, we have all received grace upon grace. That's an interesting phrase that I won't get into, but it either means grace abundant, like it's grace on top of grace, or grace instead of grace, one grace instead of another. The point is, we've got grace, and verse 17 explains it. The law was given through Moses. That could have been a form of grace, right? Like it was good for them to at least know what God expected. But notice uh, the end of verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. (laughs) We got both through Jesus. That's what we were just explaining. And, And here, by the way, the word is finally described. If you're wondering, like, okay, I don't know who this word figure is. All right, I need a name. Well, now you got a name. All of this came through Jesus Christ. It's the big reveal. This is who he's been talking about the whole time. But now look at verse 18. Just in case you forgot what happened in verses 1 through 3, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. If no one's ever seen God in all of His brilliance, in all of His glory, there are Old Testament, by the way, 
conceptions of, of people seeing God, but there's always these qualifications, like they didn't see him fully, or they were hiding behind a rock, or whatever. Or they saw him through the, the veil. But if anybody ever did indeed see God, the only thing that they were able to truly see is the Son of God. The only way to know what God is like is to look at him through Jesus. It says that the only God who is at the Father's side, remember, he's God, the only begotten God, this unique one-of-a-kind God, chapter 1, verse 1, who is at his Father's side, remember, he was with God, he has made him known. I like that, um, I love that last few words because he has made him known, as many of you would know very well. Uh, the Greek word under this is actually the same word from which we get exegesis. Now, for some of you, that brings no warm fuzzies, but for some of you, you really like that. Uh, it give you another expository preaching, kind of a similar concept, you know, where you draw out what's there. Jesus drew out what was there. He is the exegesis of the Father. But in fact, that's actually a little too like uh, direct transfer. The, the, the term exegeomai actually means to tell the full story. Jesus narrates the full story of the Father. And with that, I want to address what I would consider to be background virus number two. If background virus number one is thinking that Jesus is the nice one and he's not as powerful as God, background virus number two is thinking that Jesus is the nice one and God the Father is not. One theologian described it this way, he says, mankind through all its history has tried to imagine what existed before the world. As our minds try to make their way back to the darkness of pre-existence, who or what was there? For some, it was matter. There was some kind of gas that was supposedly always there. Which leads to a rather nihilistic worldview where it just doesn't really matter because there's no personality ruling over it all. But for many, there was a being there, there there's a person there, and, 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 they, and they wonder what that God is, is ultimately like. And, and it's a fearful thing to think of because what is this God really like? Is he mean? Is, is he hateful? Is he spiteful? You know what verse 18 shows you? There is no God in heaven unlike Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that you like about Jesus is because he has exegeted the Father. There is no need to fear. You love Jesus you have loved his father. T.F. Torrance said it this way, there is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus, no act of God other than the act of Jesus, no God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind the mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners all things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death 
are the same. Isn't that beautiful? And so, friends, I invite you to enjoy a bigger Jesus as we behold him more. There are really two overarching applications for our entire study through the book of John, and I'll preview them for you now before we pray and close in a song of praise. The first is so painfully obvious. Believe. Believe. I know there could be something about that word that would just cause it uh, for you to think, well, this just means intellectually assent to the existence of Jesus as the Son of God. That is not what I mean. The Greek word believe, actually, literally here, believe in, believe into, means trust in, depend upon, cast yourself in dependence upon this one who is the Son of God. He not only entered into humanity to right that which was wrong by our first father, Adam, but he also suffered in our place on the cross, fully paying the the penalty of sin. And he rose again bodily from the dead so that all who believe in him will share in that same fate, a resurrected fate, bodily, spiritually, alive, forever. Listen to this, as children of God. I don't know, friends, what is keeping some from believing this, from trusting in this. You, You don't Fake it till you make it. You don't belong until you believe. You just believe. You just trust. And through that, you enjoy all the benefits of what Christ has accomplished. So I'm going to be appealing over and over again for you simply to believe and to trust in this one who is both Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the second, for all who have believed, I invite you to behold, behold, continue to feast upon the goodness of Jesus. Friends, I don't know what you do to like make yourself happy. Just think with me for a moment about that. Like when you've had just a horrific day, what do you do to fix it? For some, it is the rabbit hole of social media or streaming media. For some, it is the diversion of some kind of news programming. Uh, For some, it could be some form of alcohol or a substance. But did you know that for the Christian, the relief should actually and regularly be truth and grace of the Lord Jesus. I know that seems strange, it seems foreign, it seems weird, it seems counter-cultural, and that's because it is. It is unnatural. But it is supernaturally empowered by our Lord. Friends, we, we too easily get distracted and start looking to other things, even good things. One author said it this way, Even for Christians, overlooking Jesus is easier than falling off a log. We instinctively think of God, life, grace, reality, with rarely a pause to have Jesus shape what we mean by those things. 
We can even have a Christian worldview and find Jesus is but an interesting feature in its landscape. We can even have a gospel and find Jesus is just the delivery boy who brings home the real goods, whether that be salvation, heaven, or whatever. Friends, what we really need is actually in Jesus alone. I close with these words from the great physician of the church, Dr. John Owen. He's talking about what to do when it just seems that life is totally out of hand, when you feel like you need to reach for the vice or distraction of choice uh, to to be able to make it. And then these are his words, and with this we close. He says, when struggling, do any of us find decays and grace prevailing in us? Deadness, coldness, lukewarmness, a kind of spiritual stupidity and senselessness coming upon us. Let us assure ourselves there is no better way for our healing and deliverance, yea, no other way but this alone, namely, the obtaining a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith and a steady abiding therein. Constant contemplation of Christ and His glory, putting forth its transforming power into the revival of all grace, is the only relief in this case. And friends, Owen would partake of his own medicine. For those of you who see him as this kind of distant old man, I want you to understand that he was tragically familiar with the pains of life. And at one point in 1650, he was the vice chancellor of Oxford University. And he was initially successful and influential, but then all of a sudden, the king of England had put him on the bad side of things, and he was basically exiled into obscurity. He was harassed by the new government, heavily outweighing all that. Within that same time frame, he would witness the burial of all 11 of his children, as well as his wife, Mary. But listen to what he said after the death of his first 10 These are his words. A due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life and is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave their souls. Friends, behold, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. May He grow to be bigger and bigger as you grow older. Let's pray. Father, we've prayed that you would show us Christ, and we thank you for answering that prayer in this text. Encourage us now with Him. May he be bigger. And for those who have yet to receive him, give life today. We pray that they would be saved. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.